Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Three weeks ago, Ben talked about the barrier of criticism. Uh, Two weeks ago, we discussed the barrier of tribalism. Last week, we considered the barrier of pleasing. And this morning, we're going to consider the barrier of never enough. (sighs) Never enough. Never enough sleep, never enough vacation, never enough education, never enough toys and recreation, never enough. Never enough intimacy, never enough spirituality, never enough therapy, amen? Amen. Never enough mothering and fathering, never enough. Now it's not meant to be, but it kind of sounds like a poem, doesn't it? Perhaps it's the human mantra that beats along with our very own human hearts. Never enough, never enough, never enough, never enough. In James Clear's book, Atomic Habits, which is written to help humans to intentionally habituate patterns and rhythms, rather than settling for the patterns, patterns and rhythms that we've unintentionally habituated, Clear suggests that we begin by writing out five really important words. I am a person who... I am a person who, and then we fill in the blank. I am a person who shows up on time. I am a person who uses all of my vacation days. I am a person who spends within my established budget. I am a person who. According to Clear, it doesn't really matter what it is that we write. The important thing is that we write it and then we begin to cultivate daily rhythms and systems that make it as easy as possible for us to be the kind of person that we desire to be in the world. Now, if we were to do this exercise together, I have no idea what kinds of things each of you would write. We're all so different, right? Different personalities, different temperaments, different needs, desires, a sense of calling. It's all so different. But, but here's the thing. As you think about the kind of person that you want to be, like if you just kind of let your mind start to noodle out some ideas, did this cross anybody's mind? I want to be a person who never has enough. (laughs) I am a person who never has enough. Anybody want that to be a defining characteristic of their life? No, of course not. Nobody desires that. Nobody sets out to never have enough. Nobody longs to walk a ceaseless path of more, more, always more. And yet to be human is to never have enough. To be human is to regularly walk a path of more, more, more. Even though psychological findings reveal that the human compulsion for more results in three chronic human ailments. I'm going to give them to you first. A first human ailment related to our compulsion for more is dissatisfaction with the lives that we are living. 
this is because in wanting more, it becomes increasingly difficult for us to appreciate or cherish the present state in which we actually exist. Because we're existing in a state of lack by anticipating a better situation. By doing that, we struggle to be content with the situation here and now. A second human ailment related to our compulsion for more is frustration. This is uh, often a response to needing, wanting more. And this is because in most cases, we don't manage to ever fully satisfy our desires, or at least not in the form which we imagined in its totality. And so there's often the experience of frustration, even when we kind of get to the thing that we think we want to get to. There's frustration. A third human ailment related to our compulsion for more is that it makes us less present-centered. This is because the need for more sets us down in some kind of future world that is yet to exist. Oh, we can spend so much time in that future world, can't we? That it actually takes us out of the world we actually live within. And a fourth human ailment, which is tragically ironic, a fourth human ailment related to our compulsion for more is that it makes us want more. That's really bad news, isn't it? This is because wanting is a process that never ends. And all of this makes me want to ask, why? Why more, always more? Like, if none of us want to be a person who, is, who never has enough, like, nobody wants that. And if the desire for more results in dissatisfaction, frustration, being less present, and ultimately increases our desire for more, which then becomes an ever-increasing experience of more dissatisfaction, more frustration, and being less present to our lives, why? Why would any human continue to want more? Well, according to neuroscientist Jacques Pankseep in his book, Effective Neuroscience, our human brains have seven core instincts that are deeply evolutionary. Uh, these seven core instincts include anger, fear, panic, care, pleasure, play, and seeking. According to Panksepp, seeking is the most important mammal instinct. And here's why. All mammals have a seeking system where dopamine, a neurotransmitter linked to reward and pleasure, is involved in planning and seeking more. This means that mammals are physiologically rewarded via dopamine by seeking out more of anything. To physically look for more, it's a little hit of dopamine. To imaginatively spend our time in a dream world of more is a little hit of dopamine. To experientially achieve more is a little hit of dopamine. Which in my mind rouses the same question and even magnifies the question, why, if the desire for more results in human dissatisfaction, human frustration, humans being less present to their lives, and ultimately increases our desire for more, which becomes an ever-increasing cycle of more dissatisfaction, more frustration, and being less present, why? Like, why would our bodies physiologically reward us for doing something res that results in our own unhappiness and suffering? And that's a good question. In an article by Rakeet Doobie, Thomas Griffiths, and Peter Dillon titled The Pursuit of Happiness, a Reinforcement Learning Perspective on Habituation and Comparisons, they explain the results of a very large study that sought to understand the mentality behind always wanting more. And what did they find out? The study found that the mentality of always wanting more 
promotes adaptive behavior. The result of wanting more promotes adaptive behavior, which was essential for our evolutionary survival. And this, I think, is really interesting. According to this study, the never-ending desire for more is actually secondary to the goal, which is adaptivity. That's to say, for millions of years and up to this very present moment, mammals, and humans in particular, have needed to adapt to an ever-changing landscape in order to survive. And one way that our bodies, physiologically speaking, have encouraged our ongoing adaptation for survival is to give us a hit of dopamine when we plan and seek out more. Because the pursuit of more nurtures an openness to our own adaptation. Now, we could spend a whole bunch of time talking about the connection between the desire for more and our ability to adapt. But that, that's another sermon for another sermon series, maybe next year. Well, what's interesting about this information for today's sermon on the human compulsion for more is this question. Do humans in the 21st century need a dopamine hit by seeking more in order to adapt? Do humans in the 21st century need a dopamine hit by seeking more in order to adapt? Answer, I, I'm not convinced that we do. Like as evolved humans in a modern world, as easy it is, as it is to get stuck, I believe there's an awareness of in our consciousness now and a value for in our consciousness now ongoing adaption in order to survive in the world. Very few humans would say that I can be the same person from childhood into my adulthood and elderly years. I don't have to change at all. Most humans today recognize the need to change and adapt. And so you see, the physiological reward of dopamine for seeking more has become, in many cases, kind of like a wisdom tooth, <laughs> right? Like at one point, it was somehow necessary but it is actually today no longer helpful or needed. And this is what we're trying to get at in this sermon series when we write in the series description that woven into our DNA is a natural selection of traits that have preserved our lineage over millennia. And yet, as evolutionary psychology notes, some evolutionary behaviors hold no benefit in current environments and may even harm the pursuit of flourishing. Okay, so let's just summarize, because that was a lot of content. Thanks for going with me there. We humans have a compulsion for more, always more. That's the first thing. This compulsion comes from a dopamine hit when we seek more. Seeking more was necessary motivation for ancient humans to adapt, but we modern humans no longer need a motivational dopamine hit by seeking more in order to appreciate how important it is to adapt in order to survive. And so we modern humans are left with a compulsion for more, always more, but rather than helping us to survive and flourish, this evolutionary reward now results in dissatisfaction, ongoing frustration, being less present, and ultimately increases our desire for more. What are we to do? Like, what are we to do? Evolutionarily speaking, the cards, the deck is stacked against us to simply be present to live here, to exist with what we actually have and inside of who we actually are. Well, in Buddhism, there's an ancient spiritual philosophical connection between wanting and dissatisfaction. 
It's actually expressed in the Four Noble Truths, the first, of the, uh, first two of the Four Noble Truths that talk about suffering in our lives. Uh, the First Noble Truth explains that suffering exists. That's it. Suffering exists in our lives. Uh, the second Noble Truth in Buddhism is that suffering is often caused by our cravings. Cravings cause suffering. Based on this understanding, one of the primary goals of Buddhism is to eliminate craving. But again, how? How are we to do this? Well, there are two standard answers to this all-important question found in evolutionary psychology. They're beautiful. The first is gratitude. Gratitude is the quality of being thankful, and it acts like kryptonite against the compulsion for more. Uh, here's why. Want is the desire to possess or to do or to wish for something, anything other, right? Whereas gratitude is the quality of residing where we are and being thankful for what we are experiencing. Our evolutionary bodies are primed to want, but our modern bodies must resist this compulsion by repenting. Remember, that's Christian language for neuroplasticity. Our modern bodies must slowly and intentionally rewire on a neural level. And this can only happen with thoughtful practices. At Pearl, one of our values is gratitude. About this value, we write, Jesus lived life in surrender and gratitude before the one in whom he moved and breathed and had his being. We therefore value this posture of living in humble surrender and joyful gratitude before the ground of our being. How do we humans live in humble surrender and joyful gratitude before the one in whom we move and live and have our being? Well, I think there are many possible answers. I'd like to suggest just a few to get us thinking. How about prayer? Now, I bet you didn't see that coming at Pearl Church, but, but stick with me. When I say prayer, I have in mind that first part of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name or how we've written it here at Pearl. Divine love here among us, may we awaken to your goodness in all creation. Now, I realize that just saying the word prayer could trigger lots of things inside of us depending on our religious experiences. And so what if we change the word prayer, just at times, from prayer to gratitude, and spend a little time every morning and every evening noticing everything that we're thankful for? just to wake up and pray some gratitudes. I'm grateful for, just start listing them off. Maybe in the afternoon, we're going for an afternoon walk. We've had some lunch. We have a little bit of a break from work or kids because they're napping and we're just going around the block. What if we just prayed some gratitudes before bed and falling off to slumber, dying into our nighttime tomb? Spent the last few moments of our waking hours in prayers of gratitude. That could be so good for rewiring and restructuring our brain's compulsion for more, a practice of gratitude. Well, one of my favorite poets, Ross Gay, wrote a whole book on gratitude titled Book of Delights, in which he committed writing every day for a whole year about something delightful, at least one thing every day. Whether that delight be super simple or utterly sublime. Here's an example of his writings. A tiny bee alighting in the gully between my knuckles. A hummingbird hovering close enough to fill my left ear with wind. The very sweet hello from the woman's stocking shelves. 
rubbing her eye with her fist and smiling. A hard but loving workout, a nap as light rain came down swaying the blinds, an early evening cup of good coffee, the hiding moon lighting up a cataract of clouds, and two cards, one with a glittering butterfly and one with a woodchuck eating pizza and tidy whities <laughs> And a handwritten letter in which my friend explained that delight means out from light and is etymologically connected to delicious. I love that. Delight is connected to delicious, to delectable, which I did not know despite this past year turning and turning delight over and over and over, which connects delight also to cultivation, making delight a garden. Isn't that beautiful? What if we were to intentionally nurture delight like a garden in our own mental minds? Yes, that could help to undo this wiring for more. To be clear, I'm not trying to say that we need to write something every day for an entire year, but how about being intentional to slow down when something simply catches our eye, whether that be a person or a building or a bug or a cloud, to simply pause in gratitude and to wrap our arms around it and to say to the infinite, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for that person. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this breath. Thank you for that sleep. Thank you for this food. Thank you. And suddenly the compulsion for more slowly diminishes from our lives. There are many ways to cultivate gratitude, which over time can actually rewire our brains and diminish the compulsion for more as we grow in our ability to sink into the goodness of wonder, the goodness of wonder in being alive. According to evolutionary psychology, a second type of kryptonite to our insatiable desire for more is mindfulness. You see, wanting makes us less present. Wanting takes us out of the present, and it reorients us out there, right? Somewhere in the future. Whereas being present or being mindful naturally lends itself to our here and now. Over the past few years, I've been intentional to try and cultivate a mindfulness practice during which I focus on my breath as opposed to the thoughts in my brain. And I'll tell you what, if you've ever tried that, it is not easy, is it? It is so hard. If anything, this practice has illuminated how busy my brain is and how regularly I'm focused on the future out there rather than on my life and present moment here, just as we've been discussing. And this is because my brain usually takes me forward or backward to anything other than this particular moment, which is the only moment that I actually have. God, it has me wondering how many, how many moments in my day will I choose to not live here, like in the now, wasting all of my energy in another place that isn't actually representative of my current moment. And so if you find yourself struggling in the same way, how about trying to nurture a mindfulness practice that takes you out of your brain and it puts you into your body? Of course, the goal isn't to be thinking about our breath all day. This is just a practice that intends to rewire our evolutionary brains to rest into the present moment, kind of like a child. Last week, we talked about how Jesus held up children saying, this right here, a child, the child is a representation of my very own body. He also said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. One thing that I appreciate, especially about little kids, is their inability to be anywhere else. Have you ever noticed that? Like, they're really into something, and you go to interrupt them, and they look at you like, where did you come from? 
Like, what are you do? What is happening? I was so engrossed in my moment. I was so engrossed, how beautiful is this, in my life. <laughs> when our kids were little and we were at fun places like parks, I began giving them a five-minute warning. Asher, five minutes, buddy. We're leaving in five minutes. Phoebe, five minutes. Mouse, five minutes. You got me? They'd look, they'd nod their heads, right? Yeah, okay, great, Dad. And I thought it would be helpful. Like, that's what my thinking was. In retrospect, I realized that it was helpful for me because I didn't feel as bad when I said it was time to go and they started screaming and stomping their feet. Yeah? And yet, almost every time, they were utterly shocked that it was time to go. They didn't want to go. They struggled to understand why I needed to interrupt their moments in order to go be or do something else. And as difficult as those moments could be, my goodness, what embodied presence. Think about some synonyms for presence. Absorbed, engrossed, captivated, occupied, engaged, riveted, held, interested, intrigued, immersed, involved, enthralled, spellbound, fascinated, arrested by the very moment that was their life. Why don't we want to move toward that? To be engrossed, held, interested, intrigued, immersed, involved, enthralled, spellbound, fascinated, arrested by our actual lives. Perhaps that is heaven, as Jesus talks about. You know what I mean? I'll conclude with a third kind of kryptonite to wanting that I found helpful, which is deepening into belonging. I don't know about you, but I often find that my movement toward more is an attempt to prove my value to people that I want to love me, God included. And so I try, I try real hard. So many of you have tried so hard. But at other times, I fail to try hard. And then I feel really bad. And this gets me into do a dualistic rhythm in which I'm either trying really, really, really hard, I'm trying so hard in this human life, or I'm failing really, really, really hard, and I'm feeling really, really, really bad. And neither experience feels good. This makes me think of Jesus' parable that's usually called the prodigal son. In the prodigal son, a man, a very wealthy man, has two sons. The youngest son says to his very alive and healthy father, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I'd prefer to have my inheritance now. Now, this guy gets railed on, but what a great guy. He's saying, like, here I am, I'm living now, give me all my money. Like, I'm in my prime, why do I want it later, right? Just give it to me now. And though his father was still very alive and very healthy, he gives his youngest child the inheritance. The child then runs off to the big city and wastes it all. Ashamed. He concocts a plan which involved returning home and saying, as soon as he sees his dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I did this, I'm a fool, I wasted all of this money, I don't deserve any longer to be your child. What I'd like to be is just a servant. Could I just be one of the servants and live in your home and under your care? Would that be okay? And yet when the young son returns, the father sees him in the distance, drops everything, runs to him, embraces him, and before the child could enact his plan by saying, I'm sorry, may I live here as one of your servants, the father declares, slaughter the calf, let's party, for my child was lost but has returned. Now, as the story continues, the eldest son comes in from working in the field, which he did every single day. He heard the party, asked somebody what was going on, and when he found out that his dad was throwing a party for his little brother who ran away and lost it all, he was livid, refused to go inside. The 
father notices. He comes outside and they have a conversation. The father asks, what's wrong? The eldest son says, I've never stopped working for you and you have never even given me a goat. To which the father replies these all famous words. Child, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. I love this parable. It's a complete reorientation of how we see the world. I love this parable because the youngest son and eldest son are actually two sides of the same coin, like the very same coin. The youngest child imagined that he could no longer be the father's son because he wasn't enough. The eldest son imagined that he was enough to be the father's son, but he had to earn a party. But he could never earn enough to actually have a party. And so you see, both were caught up in a world of more. More faithfulness, more activity, more work, more. And maybe, just maybe, our Father who art in heaven will accept us. Think about that world. God will accept me because I'm always becoming something more. That is an exhausting and violent God story for humans. It certainly doesn't rouse flourishing. More faithfulness, more activity, more work, more. And maybe our Father who art in heaven will celebrate us. But you see, that's a tragic story to live in, and unfortunately many of us exist in that place. It's a story in which nothing we do or become is ever enough. All the while, God, our Father and our Mother, God, we are told in this parable, delights in us. Why? Well, not because of what we do, but because of what we truly are, children. As Paul explained in the book of Acts, in God we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, we too are God's offspring. Offspring. Beloved church, children of God, may we rest deeply into our eternal belonging. As children of God, which is a birthright that cannot be taken away. No matter what we do or don't do, no matter what we become or fail to become like a mother. Think about God like that. What a perfect day, Mother's Day. God like a mother. Why does a mother lovingly gaze upon her child? Because of everything that child's accomplishing? And does the mother stop gazing lovingly on the child when the child does all of the things that the mother thinks aren't wise? No, there is this inherent thing. I've heard it said before that, that a child is like a mother's heart outside of her own body, out in the world. You can't stop loving that heart, which is your very own soul, a part of your very own body. It's impossible. In God we move and live and have our being, even as some of our own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. Like a mother lovingly gazing upon her newborn child, we are forever children of God without equivocation. And we are invited into practices that help us rest into that goodness. May it be so, and let us pray. Divine love, we so easily forget all that we have, which sustains our very lives. We so easily forget that we are all children of your divine love. May the abundance of life itself fill us even now with overflowing gratitude, allowing us to rest into the goodness that is this moment here. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, 
to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.